0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Naked Data Science. Now, we are having a new format in this episode. So Nima gives me a topic, which is Central Limit Theorem. And then I spend an hour learning about it. Then we have a little chat. Now, you will hear about why we are doing this format in the episode. But if you like it and you want to hear more episodes like this, please email us at hello- at nds.show. That will really help us decide if we are going to make more episodes like this. Thank you and enjoy this episode Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Naked Data Science. This is how (laughs) So I'm quite excited about today's episode because we are trying something new that we have never done before on the show.
1: Yeah, let's see how it goes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we're talking about this last week as we finished recording the previous episode. We realized that there's a challenge we commonly see in a lot of the students we work with and also in our previous colleagues or current colleagues that work in data science, which is a lot of times people would come across a topic. It might be some, um, let's say, quote-unquote, basic topics. And they feel that they want to understand it a little bit more. They spend like an hour, two hours look, looking into it, but usually have difficulty getting it through.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's quite common. And it's not a matter of spending the time most of the time. So a lot of times it could be selecting the right topic, as well as digging through all the layers of abstraction, all that builds up to that final understanding. And and I guess sometimes it's also not getting bogged down by, by all the details that make something correct.
0: I think that is a quite, how do you say, quite common, but also quite valuable thing if we can help people with. Because a lot of times in data science, it's good to have a good working mental model of some basic concepts or fundamental concepts. If you know that, then it really helps you, for example, when you apply the more advanced techniques based on that, or when you see a situation that is not familiar, or you see a situation that doesn't seem to make sense. But if you think it through the more fundamental concepts, then they usually help you to progress further. That's why we say, okay, let's um, let's try to talk about one of such a topic for one episode, and let's make it realistic. So the way we come up with is that we say, okay, most of the time people should have probably about half an hour, an hour, maximum two hour to look into something, right? Um, Everyone is busy alongside their job and uh, daily life. So then we kind of pose a challenge for myself, which is I was going to spend one hour looking into a concept, in this case, central limit theorem. And then within this one hour, I'll look into whatever resources that I found useful. And by the end of this hour, I am going to summarize it, put it into a kind of application, and then maybe also come up with some questions that we can discuss here. Did I miss anything, Nima? No,
1: I think that. I'm really excited to see what will happen when we do this exercise. And especially what is really appealing is what you can learn about the topic, sometimes in just by just spending one or two hours in, in learning about it, kind of out of the blue. Probably you've already been exposed to the concept, you've heard about it, but now you're going for a little deeper understanding. It's also very interesting to me that we, you went for taking this angle of what could be the applications of this thing because that's the gap which is hard to fill at points where you can spend a lot of time understanding a topic you can spend maybe more time in understanding why this is true like mathematically why does it work or algorithmically why why is it the case Uh, what are the intuitions there but then when it comes to real life and applying these things there's still a big problem to solve or a big skill to acquire when is this applicable, or is this a situation where I can use this tool? So, given all of this, I'm really looking forward to see how this pans out.
0: Okay, uh, sounds like a pretty high expectation. So,
1: <laughs> but all uh, this is given the let, time box let's see. Of let's one see. hour. That, yeah, that...
0: yeah, yeah. So, uh, let me share with you what I found out in uh, in that hour. Um, just a little bit background uh, this is not the first time I uh, learned about. Central Limit Theorem. I remember it was in my first year, freshman university. I think I think I did some basic statistics course, and this was part of it, right? But then uh, that's that's really the last time I came across it, like in a kind of dedicated way, throughout my time um, working. But then not, I, I have never really looked into it. So when I look into this, the first thing I came across before I can build a mental model around that is another concept, which is the law of large numbers. And it's a quite fundamental concept in statistics. So the way I understand it is that imagine that there is a random variable X, right? So this is a kind of like the more Mathematic term, you can think of it as, okay, you have some kind of a process that generates some kind of number, right? Let's call that X. And then imagine that it runs a very, very long period of time, and then it generates tons of numbers, and then you can average that. And then the average you get out of it, imagine, you know, the beginning of time until the end of time, then what you get is a population mean of that process, right? So you get the average of what that ver- random variable is. And the law of large numbers says in real life, you cannot really observe the population mean because you don't, ha- you don't have until the end of the time. But as long as you start running this process, and the more times you run it, the more it will converge or it will approach the population mean if you calculate the, the mean of all those runs uh, that you have. That. I think practically in a lot of workplaces, people uh, just think of that as, okay, the more times you run an experiment, for example, or the more number of people you expose a, for example, A-B test to, then the more likely you are getting a mean that is close to the true mean of that changed process, things like that. Um, So that is the lot of large number. And uh, did I miss anything?
1: I I think it was a... Good summary, and uh, love to add to that if you could is some more examples of uh, those processes that generate something. Because in a way, we always go to this mathematical definition of a random variable, and and a, and in the end, to be correct, you have to go there. But. I guess the concept of the random variable is, itself is could be sometimes hard to grasp if you're, if you're not thinking in those uh, probabilistic yeah, yeah, terms. Yeah.
0: So everybody uses dice, so I'm not going to use <laughs> dice uh, as an example. I think this is what people typically kind of overemphasize on the wrong thing, right? So, so whenever people talk about statistics or probability, then you see on the cover of the book, there's some dices, or so, uh, uh, people draw some dices. Uh, but it can be just pretty much everything. Exactly. So one example I would say would be, imagine that you commute to work, right? You walk to the train station, you take a train, and then the train arrives at the station near your work, and then you get, up, get off the train, and then you walk to your uh, uh, your office, right? Imagine you do this every day. This in and of itself is a random process because every time the exact time you spend going out of your home and arriving at your office, the time, the duration in between is different every time, right? And you can think of that as a random process or even part of that. So even how much time it takes you to work from your home to the station it's not exactly the same every time right because if, you know every day the way you work is slightly different maybe the weather is slightly different maybe on the way they're fixing something, so you have to take a detour so all these kind of things make this process a random process so when you think like that really most of the stuff in real life is random yeah, process.
1: Yeah, I really like that example. I think that's one of the best. I always come across you know, these processes which happen daily and randomness there is basically the variability that is somehow out of our model in a way. So It's, it's, a, it's a variability in what you want to measure. And I think even making it simpler, whenever we have variability in, a, in our measurements, in a way we could been looking at it as, as dealing with a random variable like so, so, so whenever this uncertainty is there and and I and I love this way of looking at things as a process generating things and but and sometimes it's even very natural processes that we can think about. So, that, I don't know, scientists go to this new area, they find these new species, subspecies of rabbits, for instance, and they want to get an idea about how big these guys are. And they start measuring how much they weigh. They, they start measuring uh, how long they are in, uh, in length. And that is itself, again, or can be looked at as, as a random variable or random process. So, so in, in that sense, the, the scores that students get in an exam could be thought about as a random process. Whatever, Kind of measurements that you want to summarize about a population can be thought of uh, like that, and and that's I think a key in seeing the relevance of central limit theorem or, or the law of large numbers as, as we are talking about it now is that when we're dealing with a population of things that are of course generated by by, by some process uh, in the end we always get these measurements about a sample of those populations. Uh, of course, we are hoping that that sample is representative of the population. But then, for me at least, when I think about measurements like this, and, and these measurements could be averaging weights of the rabbits or, or, or how long these rabbits are uh, in, in this specific area. But when thinking about it like that, then suddenly these two key fundamental theorems become immediately relevant and 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 of course somehow surprising in how applicable they are as we i'm, I'm sure we're going to talk more about them so yeah kudos and and looking uh, at it with that kind of example and 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 of course you went for a, a very realistic, nice example of the process. But I just wanted to point out this process could be any kind of natural process, anything that that lets us do some kind of measurements uh, with variability.
0: Yeah, there's something kind of... Deeply beautiful in, in that in how much this uh, these two things apply uh, to the nature. Let's come to that later. Now, um, just following the the example I gave before, right? So imagine you commuting to work. Actually, from there we can go directly to the central limit theorem, which is um, building on top of the law of large numbers, which says that if you sum up a bunch of uh, sum up a bunch of random variables generated through uh, different Processes, right? And assume that these variables are independent, right? And then, so in our example, there will be the total time, uh, total commute time, which is the sum of, let's say, the working time from your home to the train station, the time for the train to take you to the station near the work, and then the time it takes for you to work from that station to your office, right? Let's say those are the three variables. And if you add them up, you have the total commute time. And the thing is that if you do that again and again and again and again and again then you will see that the total commute time turn to distribute like a normal distribution. It's it's never really a normal distribution, but then it usually approximates towards that, which just means that the more times you do this, the more you see it kind of like becoming a bell curve. It can be a little bit fat, it can be a little bit thin, but that's what you tend to see. So uh, that's my understanding of the uh, central limit theorem. In terms of the application, so as long as you have a bunch of processes that are independent from each other, and oh, uh, I think it's important that uh, none of this process is really skewed, but then, as long as that's not the case, then you can apply this to uh, a wide range of things. So that's my understanding, my mental model of the central limit. Yeah, I think I
1: think that's a good. Uh... Good summary. Definitely, a good, good, good place to start. Maybe about the last point that you mentioned when this pro- none of these processes is is highly skewed. I think that's a very interesting point to, to dig into later. Maybe even broader, looking into what kind of assumptions are are behind the applicability mm-hmm. of a central limit theorem. About that one point that came to my mind is that the way of thinking is typically that we have copies of the same random variable and you're basically mm-hmm. dealing with identical copies, independent and identical copies of, uh, of the same random variable. So it basically means that whatever process that you assume generates one variable is also behind generating the other variable. One thing that gets lost a bit exactly related to this notion of independent copies of uh, the same random variable. And it's pointing out to the fact that when we go and talk about central limit theorem, we are talking about the sampling distribution. And I think that's a very key point to bring into the picture. So, So what do we mean by the sampling distribution? Let's say you draw samples from a, some sort of population that is generated by this process that we talked about. And then these samples themselves form a distribution. The shape of this distribution is not necessarily and does not have to be in any way the same as the shape of the original distribution that generated this data. In, at least in many cases, it's useful to think about the central limit theorem. So let's say this example, continue with this stupid examples of the rabbits that, that I got stuck with now. You go every month to that same location, gather a group of rabbits and start measuring their weights, for instance. When you look at the data that you gathered each month, every time you gather the mean of this distribution. And if you make a distribution of those mean, then this distribution in the limit is going to be looking like a normal distribution. And that is one of the beauties of this theorem, in a way, that given some conditions that I'm sure we will talk about it as we go on, it really doesn't matter what your original distribution looked like. The sampling distribution is guaranteed to look like a normal distribution. So you can have skewedness in in your original distribution. That is not necessarily a a big problem. Even under those conditions, basically given that we know, for instance, that the mean and the standard deviation of... Of the original distribution is well defined and of course some other small conditions then you're guaranteed that your sampling distribution looks like a normal distribution and i think that is one of the magical properties of the central limit theorem that's or maybe in a way one of the beautiful things of how nature and mathematics could go hand in hand and give us this convenient way of thinking and reasoning about the whole population. or at least one good way to use central limit theorem is to think about the angle of the sampling distribution. Basically, if I were to take a lot of samples of this distribution, what would that distribution itself look like?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that is something is a bit difficult to wrap your head around, especially the one the first time I came across this sample mean, right? So it's a bit tricky, because we are not talking about you take one set of sample, what's the mean of that? But we are talking about we take many samples of N instances or N records, and then you kind of look at the distribution of those mean of those samples. And in that case, you start to yeah, see exactly. a, a because normal distribution.
1: Imagine. Not all distributions have to be normal for us to be able to apply this. And I think that's that's the part where kind of the wide applicability and beauty of this, this method comes in. So I think technically Central Limit Theorem is talking about sum of random variables, which when you divide them by the number of uh, observations, you get the mean of random variables. So that's the key point when this transition happens. In a way, law of large numbers is always talking about that mean that you will observe, that sample mean that you will observe. And then the central limit theorem goes a step further and then talks about the distribution of those means uh, that you will observe. And that's the reason where you can have a distribution which is not looking normal at all, but satisfies some required conditions. And then when you draw a sample from it, you know that the mean that you drive is going to be governed by a normal distribution if you were to repeat that that measurement or, or or that kind of experiment. So it's maybe a kind of meta level of talking about distributions. It's the distributions of your uh, your sample yeah. means, and it is difficult. I think at least for me, it was a bit difficult to wrap my head around it uh, the first times. But one way that makes it more concrete or at least for me more intuitive to see the problem from this angle is thinking about experiments and a b testing i think that's one of the more natural ways where you have immediately the reason to to think in this term imagine I don't know, they made a new drug a new treatment uh, a new change tweak in the ui whatever you want to experiment with and then we are assuming that overall this treatment version might have a different mean than the control version for, for all the participants uh, in this experiment. We do one experiment, especially if it's a medical experiment. It's, it's quite sensitive. It could be quite tricky to even have, I don't know, 20, 30, definitely thousands of people in, in the experiment. Now we've drew a mean for the treatment. and Of course, we have a mean for the control. We have one mean. We've done one measurement, and now that's the part where it becomes important to see how representative this measurement could be. And and that's the part where, if you know that the means that you draw are coming from a normal distribution, then you can basically start reasoning about how likely it is that I got a sample that is this far from the true mean. So, basically, then you go through your typical reasoning about the normal distribution, the 65, 98, 99 rule. It can be one standard deviation. As a and that's the probability of falling between one standard deviation, two standard deviation, and and so on. So, so all of this beautiful theory about normal distributions then suddenly becomes available to you to kind of backward reason about the true mean of the distribution that you don't have direct access to. You're always going to be able to draw some uh, samples from. It.
0: And that. Difference in the true mean of the you know pre-treatment and post-treatment processes, for example, those things are usually very valuable for businesses, right? Because you can imagine that if on average the new version of your website convert just 0.1 percent more user than mm-hmm. than the old version, for a lot of business that directly links to I don't know millions of uh, uh, euro or dollar improvements. So that's why these numbers are super important. Um, now we, we talk about mean a lot, right? What about skill? What about other kind of summary statistics, right? Let's say in some business uh, situations, I not only care about difference in the mean, but I also want to make sure that the new version don't end up with more disastrous mm. situation or more, let's say, outlier situation than the control version. Does central limit theorem say anything about that or can be used mm. for that? Good question. I... I actually don't think
1: I know a direct connection uh, between central limit theorem and outliers in that way. Maybe one kind of connection is the other way around, that some distributions make at least a vanilla version of central limit theorem not applicable, so that normal distribution approximation is, is not a good one anymore. And in that sense, maybe it's more like when central limit theorem cannot be used, whether it can warn us about something. So a very, I guess, interesting case, and and case that is not very rare uh, to come across, is cases where we are dealing with heavy-tailed distributions. So this could be distributions, for instance, when your standard deviation is not defined because you, I, I'm no expert on heavy tail distributions from a mathematical perspective. My, my intuitive understanding is that these are distributions where unlike, let's say, your typical normal distribution, when you get some standard deviations further from the true mean, then the probability of seeing an example there is exponentially low, basically. And this curve starts going down at, at a very fast rate. Once you start getting very far, From the mean. But there are some distributions where no matter how far you go from the mean, there's still a good possibility of observing examples. And so then the rate of seeing that uh, probability is not sub logarithmic or something. It's bigger than any kind of threshold that that you can put there. Can you
0: give a real world example? Yeah,
1: exactly. I wanted to go there. So I think uh, one of the best examples you see there are events that can kind of form a feedback loop. One, one of the most common ones is social network phenomena. So let's say this person gets famous on Twitter. He starts gathering his network and then other people start retweeting his tweets. So then, then this network starts growing. And this is a matter with a lot of forms of also natural popularity in, uh, in society. So the number of friends, the number of connections, the number of people who see somebody's tweets, for instance, and a lot of other problems in computer networks, even the size of files that people send around over the internet, these are known to be not governed by normal distributions at all. And, and then these are the phenomena where heavy tail distributions, long tail distributions can can be a better approximation. So when you're dealing with these situations, for instance, one, one instance that happens is that you don't have a well-defined standard deviation anymore because you can see very, very large numbers, this distribution, and you can't exclude or ignore that probability anymore. So once you go there, then central limit theorem is not your friend. I mean, the vanilla form of central limit theorem is not your friend anymore. I... No, there are approximations to to those functions, uh, and more complicated versions of central limit theorem that try to be better approximations of the resulting the distribution in in some cases. But I'm really out of my depth mm-hmm. <laughs> when, uh, when things go there. What I'm cautious about is to know if it's likely that I'd be dealing with uh, those kind of scenarios, and then just be a, just be careful not to apply the wrong tool or or not to draw conclusions which are based on the assumptions of, for instance, having a finite standard deviation in in your distribution. But Mm -hmm. for sure, these are cases which come across more often than we'd like to admit. And I think there are famous cases in the financial domain, famous cases of people making the basically central limit theorem approximations or, or a way of reasoning about their data that have resulted in disastrous outcome. Yeah,
0: there, for example, is is quite common in options. So in financial markets, so think about option as kind of like an insurance, right? So you say, OK, I want to have an insurance against, I don't know, the price of Bitcoin going uh, too high or the, the price of uh, Tesla stock going too low and then you can buy kind of like insurance which is called options and then there were a lot of newcomers new traders they feel that oh you know selling options seems to be really good because you know you can sell a pretty good price for the insurance that you are selling you can sell those right and the thing is that you can just keep selling it and keep collecting money right so that a lot of people think this is kind of like cash printing machine but then That is just because they made the assumption that the distribution is a normal distribution, while in reality, like Mm. you mentioned, the price of financial products sometimes can go into a feedback loop or sometimes can go into a very rapid change pattern that the probability of going really far out from its current price. So if you look at the price of a stock, right? If today is at X, then tomorrow is less likely to be X minus say 2Y compared to X minus 1Y. So the further away the price change, the less likely. However, if you go towards the extreme, it is non-zero, and actually mm. the probability of those happening it might even be larger than some of the intermediate levels, just because how the feedback loop works in a, a, in financial markets. So uh, yeah, so don't don't sell options if you see a get-rich-quick uh, course. <laughs>
1: That's a good, That's a very nice example, because I think it also touches upon, uh, a little bit touches upon the independence assumption among the random variables. Mm. I'm sure the prices uh, and the transactions that result in those prices are not fully independent. Oh. There, It's likely to assume they are correlated in some way. And one small point there is that if these correlations were linear, so if the, all these random variables, all these measurements that, that, that we were gathering linear in some way, then still central limit theorem would be applicable. So you, you might shift the mean or, or you might be able to form some kind of additive computations that, that, that give you the right result. But an interesting point is that when you have this network structure, then you also lose that linearity in the feedback. So you're more likely to deal with feedback loops that are nonlinear. So for instance, they have some kind of exponential nature. And that's, again, one of the cases where you should be very careful about applying central limit theorem, I- again, in, in, at least in this vanilla form, uh, for sure.
0: Um, okay, so, so we talk about the implication of the shape of the distribution. We talk about the implication of the, th- does it make sense if it has skewed what happens when there's, uh, there is outliers. What about the sampling sizes? Because we take the sampling mm. I, sampling, and then there are some sample sizes and then the approach. Does something play there? Is there anything we need to keep in mind when we use uh, central limit theorem? Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, you've probably seen it when you were reading the theorem itself, but I think it's one of the key points. To understand and to have in mind about the central limit theorem there's something very intuitive there yeah, so when you think about it, okay if I draw one sample, if I draw a thousand samples, then it's more likely that thousand samples get closer to mean or the true value that I like to observe and central limit theorem basically or lower for instance law of large numbers and the very extreme and the infinite and the limits are talking about things converging to the true mean and the central limit theorem also allows us to talk about intermediate values of this number of samples or n that you're dealing with and again one beautiful thing there is that it quantifies this notion of i will have more certainty with more samples and, and basically shows us the variability in the sampling distribution decreases in reverse proportion to your number of samples. So basically, if if the variability is sigma 2 for the original distribution of the data, then the sampling distribution's variability is going to be sigma 2 divided by n, when n is the number of samples. Or equivalently, you can say a standard deviation grows in reverse proportion to square root of n. And that's the very key point when we want to talk about central limit theorem. Again, Having that part is what allows us to talk about, for instance, 95% confidence intervals. Because once we know, okay, again, there have to be assumptions uh, made there about the truest standard deviation of the data, which is most of the time another unobserved variable. There have to be assumptions made about the real standard deviation of the original distribution. And once you have that, you can talk about the standard deviation of the sampling distribution. So how does it come into play? You've done one measurement about some kind of data, let's say the, the benefits, or let's say the blood pressure of people in the treatment group or the control group, or maybe... Uh, easily you can start talking about the comparison or the relative difference between these two, which is most of the, for instance, A-B test experiments uh, measurements. And what this theorem about the variability of the sampling distribution gives us is now that we can talk about how likely is it that we are this far from the true mean, that we are one standard deviations or two standard deviations from the true mean when we did these measurements. And that's the place where having more examples, having more samples, is directly increasing our certainty. So if we want to be sure that we we are within a 95% confidence interval, we plug in... The standard deviation that we observed in the samples that we have, we plug in the number of samples that we have in the formula and and we get an estimate about the 95% confidence interval. The more samples that we have, the smaller this interval becomes. And that is maybe a good point to also mention one tricky thing about dealing with uh, uncertainty in this way is that the more samples that you have, you can be certain about smaller changes. And that's the trap that people can easily fall into. So, so that that's why a lot of good practices about Deciding prior to an experiment and an effect size that you want to observe, a number of samples that you need to observe that effect size become important. Because especially with the scale of the internet and, and many companies having access to I don't know, hundreds of millions of uh, users, you can always, or it is likely that you can get enough samples to make things look significant, especially if you're then going into the realm of p-values and things like that. So it is a key point uh, to have in mind the number of samples there. It is a key point to have in mind the trade-off that you have between certainty and the number of observations that you get and this trade-off can become of course pretty real in the business world or even in the real world in the medical world for instance yeah so how many people are you going to expose to this treatment whether in your mobile app or in in your medical experiment how much certainty will you gain with this number of people and then always you're weighing it about some potential downsides of your experiment in the medical case it is quite obvious you don't want to hurt people's health and In the business sense, it's also very direct sometimes. If you have a risk experiment, you don't want to expose too many users to it. What if you hurt their experience of your product very bad, your reputation very bad, or just directly starting to lose revenue? So that's where I think central liminal theorem comes into play and comes into play very fundamentally in the way we think about certainty, uncertainty, value and cost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there a lot of times also when you are in a, for example, in a business setting, then another thing you need to think about is that it's relatively easy at the beginning of an experiment or at least the beginning gathering data part, because when you are at that phase, uncertainty is reduced relatively quickly. But then, as you mentioned, as the number, the sample size goes higher and higher, it's reverse proportion to the, the kind of, for example, the confidence interval you want to reduce. And that just means that the more data you gather, the more new data you need in order to reduce uh, uncertainty by the same amount. That just means that at a certain point, you have to say this is enough and, you know, we go from here. But then how to decide that point? How long is that point? Usually, of course, in theory, the best practice is, has always been, OK, we Decide on that number, and then we, once at that point, it's a cutoff, right? So a lot of times, this is kind of like the best practice people try to follow. But in reality, usually not in a black or white situation. You're usually in a situation where it's too, how do you say that? It's, it's, it's not good enough for you to say, yes, we can make a decision. But it's also not bad enough for you to say, no, we shouldn't think about this, right? It's usually in between. So then at that point, a lot of times, uh, you need to look at the number of samples you already have. And then you need to say, okay, if we want to gather more, how much? And if we want to reduce the uncertainty by X amount, then how many more samples Mm -hmm. that we need? So this is another kind of like a decision point you might come across doing data science uh, in businesses.
1: Absolutely. And I think there, now that we're talking about Uh, experimentation, for instance. I think interesting practice is to also think about experiments uh, potentially in iterations or at least in different steps. So you might look into a direction with some level of certainty and start seeing some signals. And you might form another hypothesis once you have that, even if you don't have enough data, and then you can design a new experiment to specifically look into that and then prepare together enough data to specifically look for a change in, in that direction where now looks promising, but you're not 100% uh, or you're not certain enough about the data that you have at hand. As long as that hypothesis is well-defined and then can always start a new experiment, and hopefully now you're in a better position than you were initially. So, so your uncertainty has reduced by some amount based of on, this based on the initial experiments uh, that you ran. And that's also the case where for effects which might come up unexpectedly. So you might not have expected to see a big difference in that part of the business or in that specific metric. You run an experiment, you do observe it. It's not the best practice to start deciding on that effect based on that original experiment that uh, where you did not hypothesize about. But this could be a really nice trigger to form a new hypothesis and to design a specific experiment to learn about that, that new
0: measure. That's a lot we talk about uh, central limit theorem. Just to recap on my side, the law of large numbers says that if you keep repeating a process enough times, then you will start seeing the mean measurement of that process turn to converge towards its true mean. So it's true, uh, it's population mean, let's say it that way. And then because of that, when you are repeating the process again and again, and you are collecting different samples, and then you collect one sample, and then you collect another sample, and you collect another example, the distribution of the mean of those samples, they themselves turn to form a normal distribution. So that is the central limit theorem. That is my current mental image. And there are certain limitations on that. For example, the, how much you can assume that each process uh, is independent in real world. And also the type of distribution, especially when you have more fertile dis- uh, distribution, then you really need to be aware of that when you try to apply things that are actually built on top of central limit theorem. So that's my takeaway.
1: Yeah, I would like to add maybe just just some practical tip about it. I think we talked about it's one of the most fundamental theorems that is used today, especially considering how widely used uh, experimentation, for instance, has become. But something that I noticed is that it might be less intuitive to think about it when we're doing calculations, aggregations outside of experiments. And that's why I like this notion of thinking about uncertainty in any kind of measurement, maybe thinking about processes as what could be any kind of uh, natural process. So we talked about this, I guess, previously as well, but whenever we're doing some kind of summarization of a population, I would think it would be really beneficial if we have this central limit theorem in mind and just have in mind that we are drawing conclusions based on a sample of some total population of things, some of which might not have been even generated uh, at the time we're we're doing the measurements. And having that view in mind, I think might be beneficial, might be helpful in having in mind that whenever we're doing a summarization like that, we are dealing with uncertainty. And of course, central limit theorem is one of the, most useful tools, most broadly applicable tools to start measuring that uncertainty and quantifying that. That's basically the root of the reason or could be thought about as one explanation for the reason that if you gather 10 people and measure their performance and average it, you have less certainty in that information than when you gather 200 people or much less than when you gather 1,000 people. And I think that could be a nice mental model to to have in the back of your head whenever we're doing things like
0: that. All right, man. This has been fun. Then I guess that's the end for this episode. Thank you for listening and see you next time. See you next time. Just one last thing before you go. If you are not a data scientist yet, but want to become one, you should really attend our webinar. We will demystify the transition into data science, We'll show you the most effective way to build your skills and we'll advise you on the four possible options you can take to go from where you are to landing a data science job in as little as nine months. Find out more at nds.show forward slash webinar. That is nds.show forward slash webinar. All right, that's the end of this episode. Have a nice day.